Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Asians in Advertising. This is the show that tackles issues Asians face with their daily lives and within their careers. Today, I'll be speaking with the eternal optimist and the product strategy lead at Walmart, Eric Hugh. Please tell our listeners who you are, what your current title is, and what you're working on. My name's Eric Hu. It's an honor to be here. Um, and today, I lead strategy for the financial services product org at Walmart. And a lot of my time is spent thinking about strategy, not just through a lens of advertising, but also through CX. And most importantly, in my current role, how products can impact people's lives from a financial standpoint. Tell us a little bit about your career journey. My story really began from when I was eight, uh, and my mom sort of. Uh, I always like to pretend that I had a choice, but you know, I always joke that Asian Americans growing up in middle-class households get three choices in early life, which is violin, cello, piano, and I was thrust upon uh, violin, and I'm eternally grateful. So I spent a good 10, 12 years playing, and I even went to NYU for it later,、um, and I spent almost all four years studying how to be a performing artist. And I always start with that story because I think so much of how I think about how to show up as a strategist today, how to show up as someone who hopefully helps mentor other strategists and other creative thinkers in the industry, is based around how you perform in a room and what kind of energy you're able to bring with you. From that decade of classical violin performance experience, I tried a lot of different things when I entered college、um, and early on in my career. So I wanted to be someday a congressman potentially. So I worked for Tim Bishop for a year on the communications side, and I really wanted to show up as a history buff, which is one of my side passions. It didn't really pan out, and that's okay. But then I tried my hand at、uh, the nascent startup scene in New York, and at the time it was anyone and everyone who would be willing to hire me. Looking for a, just a young kid to come in and say, "I have a can-do attitude. I don't have many things that I know how to do, but I'm willing to try it all, and I'm going to throw 150% of myself towards it." And I learned so much as a community manager, helping build and nurture just consumer bases that would one day become loyal to a very, very new product. And so I learned a ton there. And it wasn't until 2016. When a lot of the work that I was doing got picked up by Business Insider and CNBC, and thankfully one of the head honchos at Deloitte Digital took notice, took me under his wing, and from there the rest is history. I worked in one of the nation's largest consulting arms, that then got involved in advertising, and it's just been a whirlwind of agencies from Anomaly to RGA to AKQA and Conan Theory. The list goes on. But my love for advertising, even though I'm no longer technically in the industry, still stays with me every day. I mean, Susie, you've seen the inside of my apartment through Zoom. I am such an avid collector of print ads from the '60s and '70s, especially of the car variety. So, that's sort of a, a taste of where I've been and where I am now. So, what did you study in college? You played music throughout. Were you a music major? Unfortunately, yeah. So balancing that <laughs> schedule, not fun.、Um, I study violin performance, string performance, technically under the Steinhardt School of Music at NYU, and it's so funny because I spent as much time studying as I did trying to run away from that major. So I was balancing, you know, forty to sixty-hour work weeks with maybe five to ten hours of practice. 
don't tell my professors, but it would be flights across the country. I mean, to San Francisco, where I worked, all the way back home for midterms and the finals and recitals. And it was impossible to balance. And it wasn't until my very last year, senior year, that I was able to just kind of squeeze out of the violin program into media studies, where I felt instantly more at home studying things like cultural anthropology through a digital uh, media lens. So that was, it was a pretty interesting time of life for sure. So, Eric, this is great. You've already touched upon imposter syndrome. <laughs> You've touched upon going against the model minority myth. Yeah. <laughs> These are all very true to the Asian culture and heritage. So let's talk about that. Your heritage is what? So I'm a technically, I guess, a first-generation Chinese-American. My mom's from, well, her side of the family hails from Hong Kong, and my dad's side of the family comes from Taiwan, but they're ethnically Han Chinese from Jiangxi. So I grew up with sort of like a, a hodgepodge of cultural nuance, and it's so funny because, and I'm glad you brought this up, I speak both Mandarin and Cantonese, or as you said earlier, you speak dim sum. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> <Yes>. so funny. <laughs> but I definitely, for sure, I love me some hagao. So uh, Sundays I would, you know, go go get dim sum after our Chinese school with my grandparents and we'd be speaking Cantonese. But at home, because my dad only speaks Mandarin, we would sort of have that code switching throughout the day. And it's funny because... If you talk to my sister and I today, in the home setting, you'll find us switching between Mandarin, Chinese, and English almost fluidly, and it's, it's just fascinating to listen to. <laughs> so in probably one sentence, there's three different languages spoken. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. That's great. I love that our listeners are getting a chance to hear that. Yes, you did go to school for music, but you're not working in that. But it's used in other ways. It's definitely helped you in other ways. You also dabbled in commercial photography. Not really dabbled. You're a very good photographer. Oh, thank you. <laughs> One of the things you do really, really well is giving back. That's so appreciative of this audience because a lot of Asians don't want to ask for help. You talk about all these different pieces of your life. And we had this conversation before about failing forward. Yeah. You've done a lot of things that they didn't all work out. You learned from them. You applied them in other ways. I think that's that's a cultural barrier that you had to learn to either overcome or figure out what to do with it. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's absolutely not only a fear of failure, but a almost inertia of getting started because something might not work out. Yeah. I am a born optimist, and I think that's how you actually introduced me, and I really appreciate that because not only do I believe that there's something great in every individual, but I certainly think if there's any kind of impact I could leave is I think so much about the mentors I've been lucky enough to have. Quick shout out to Aaron and Tom and John. Those are three guys that throughout the agencies I've worked at have shaped fundamentally the way I approach the people I get to work with, the brands I work on, so on and so forth. And I think so much about, you know, what would my career have been like so far if I didn't have those people to just gut check an opinion or just ask for a second opinion, right? And knowing and having the security of having all that wealth of wisdom somewhere in the ether that you could always grab and kind of pull close to you, I think that's such a privilege that I want to be able to provide to every person to come after me. 
So one thing that I always live by is not only do you have to send the ladder down behind you, but you have to do it promptly and you have to show that there's action after failure. I think there's something fundamentally different between what we're seeing on LinkedIn today, which is this idea that, oh, we need to help in mass. Think about all those trending hashtag posts. Oh, if you've been laid off, let me know in the comments. I think those are great. That initiative, that drive is awesome and it works at scale. But I'm more interested in pinpointing specific individuals in my life that I know need help and really diving deep with them to make sure that they get the assistance they need. Now that that's really great advice because I've definitely tried the mass approach myself and I found that once I connect with certain individuals and they're willing to introduce me to a couple of people directly, that seems to work better and takes me further. Even if it doesn't work out, I feel like I learned something from each of these introductions. Yeah. So yeah, that's absolutely. really important. Or at least, you know, planting a seed for future may not be this opportunity right now, but it could be something down the line. So you definitely are debunking the model minority myth. Even though you are successful, you didn't have good grades, you mentioned. (laughs) (laughs) You you weren't that smart Asian kid. (laughs) No, no. Let me put it this way. In high school, I still remember you could climb all the way up to this point where, I mean, not just the valedictorian, but a whole cohort of albeit mostly Asian, colleagues of mine, I mean, they they were able to get to a college-level course for differential uh, differential equations, let's call it. I don't know. Still to this day, never took that class, <laughs> even in college. And I remember feeling not bad because I always knew I just wasn't a good student, but I was sitting there in pre-calculus, not even calculus, like the pre-calculus class, and I had a 68 on my statewide exam. That means that Everyone that's graduating from high school is expected to at least have the knowledge enough to pass that test. Now, technically, I passed with three points. In my book, that's a win. (laughs) But I remember going home and just the look on my mother's face. I mean, she was, uh, my mom graduated from MIT when fewer than, I think, 16% of the graduating class were female, right? So she's had this legacy of academic excellence. My sister, top of her class, always, always, always. Teachers loved her. My dad, same deal there. I mean, that guy was ROTC and juggling that with college. So just from a family of like scientists and a lawyer and just academic juggernauts. And then you have me who's like, yeah, I dabble in photography. (laughs) I scraped by in classes. But I'll tell you what, I think one thing that I've noticed about especially my Asian colleagues and peers today, the way they learn and the way that I process information could not be more different. And I think that's something that I really challenge a lot of strategists to think about because we all go through, if you grow up in America, in most circumstances, I would say, if you go to a public school, you are force-fed this rote memorization-based model of learning. And you go through this process of saying, okay, I'm going to remember the War of 1812 uh, or 1814. I see I'm already forgetting. And you're going to remember it because this happened, this is who, who it happened to, and so on and so forth. But when you get into the real world, especially a strategy role, that doesn't help you connect the dots. It only shows you where the dots are. And when you look at the constellations in the sky at night, you realize that they don't really matter unless you're able to paint a picture with those stars. And that's the analogy that I use in my everyday and my work to really think about not just what information am I learning and looking at and consuming, but the systems that connect pieces of information that may not have any connection whatsoever. It's that element of surprise that I think 
I was able to teach myself because I never had the structure and the rote memorization that was beat into me from paying attention in class. So I actually think, you know, maybe this is sort of like a see mom, I told you so moment, but I actually <laughs> think not being a good student helped me a little bit in my career. Yeah. So you mentioned um, you had a few mentors before. So who are they again and why are they your mentors? What do you go to them for? Oh, everything. <laughs> These days, it's like dating advice. It's, it's what book should I read? It's everything. But I think first and foremost, I would say my parents have been my lifelong mentors, obviously, right? But in particular, I felt like I spent a lot of my childhood just learning from my sister as well, actually. And my mom told me the other day, and I loved remembering this because I honestly forgot a little bit of my early adulthood. It just escaped my mind. But Is she older or younger? She's much older. So she's eight years older. And my mom told me that when I was younger, I worshiped the ground that my sister would walk on. And I don't think that's changed, but I think when I see my sister, she has everything that makes for a successful, traditional Asian kid in America. But she also does so many things well that Asian Americans don't identify with, right? She's outspoken, she's assertive, she's such a great networker. Um, she is so articulate, but she's also studious and she has so many hard skills and soft skills. And I think just her interest in sports even, I think uh, still in this day and age, I had a boss of mine tell me, you know, Eric, maybe you should spend some time golfing or doing things that you don't like, especially around. We've talked about this a lot on our own time, but sports ball, right? I, I don't know that you or I have any vested interest in, in any kind of traditional sports, but and that's OK. But that is how people get ahead today is, you know, a lot of deals are inked on the green in yes. golf. Right. And I think that's something my sister's done really well. So just being able to be in the presence of such greatness, my sister, my mom, my dad, like people who just figured it out along the way, that set me up really, really well. And also showed me that there are plenty of people worth spending the time to learn from. And I think that's one of the things that helped me unravel this idea of why would you not ask for help if someone has that wealth of wisdom and they're just waiting to share it with someone? Yeah. I sort of flip it around as, if you have all the information about how to succeed in the world, why would you not share it? Why would you not pass it down? Because that is literally how you're going to be remembered, and it's certainly how I hope to be remembered someday. And so a great example of that is, similar to how I met you, Susie, is I met Tom Doktoroff, who is the former CEO uh, of the APAC region for JWT, which arguably is one of the most iconic names in advertising history, probably the oldest agency ever. Yeah. And I love listening to his stories because it comes from an era where it was the golden age of advertising. And not only that, but it was in a place where the culture feels more like mine than where I currently live today, right? And that's advertising from the perspective of a white guy, a white Jewish man um, who is gay and lives in Asia, a traditionally more conservative culture, cultural landscape. And listening to him navigate the complexities of being himself in the workplace and outside of the workplace, in a place that's foreign, then spending a quarter of a century there and rising to the very top, becoming a best-selling author, becoming a mentor, not only is it an honor to be in his presence, but I felt like there was an instant kinship. And I think it's so important that when people look for a mentorship, it's not just people that they want to emulate in terms of rising to that level of notoriety or success or influence, but also finding people that fit you. And I remember this ties back to my time in college is a lot of people were talking about what's the difference between going to high school or going to college. 
And the one piece of advice that always stuck with me is high school is a time where you learn how to fit in, how you really try to just make yourself affable to other people. But college is a time where you figure out how to find people to fit you. And I think of my career path very much as that, finding brands that fit my internal purpose, finding colleagues that will help me excel in my path and accelerate my path and and vice versa. And so that's something that I carry with me every day when I talk to my mentors and when I hope to be a mentor to someone else. Yeah. I think you hit upon a really good point, too, about hard skills and soft skills, because I think Asians in general are really good with hard skills. Oh, yeah. And they were told that pretty much most of their lives and for generations. But very few people were told, you got to improve on your soft skills. I don't remember being told, oh, yeah, you should learn how to network. You should learn how to be a leader. You should learn how to speak up. So I'm glad that now those are part of the learnings and teachings especially to the Asian community, because generally we're not very good at it because we were told not to be. We were told to focus on the hard skills, and that should get us places. Absolutely. I I don't know that hard work is enough anymore. I don't even know that networking alone is enough anymore, right? I mean, there was certainly a time where who you know could help elevate you to where you want to go. But I think today, one thing that I focus a lot of my time on is just that, that balance of hard skill and soft skill One thing that I think about a lot in the way that I show up in meetings, for example, is I want to help remind people why they took up their career path in the first place. And I think that's a skill that is intrinsically my own, and it's something that I don't know that anyone else can replicate. So any lasting advice? What do you want to leave our listeners? What's a lesson you want them to remember? It's not only good to be different, but I think going out of your way to find things that could help you be different and realizing that the fringes of the way you see the world, not the things that you know about yourself, but trying to figure out the things that you don't know about yourself, that pursuit will help accelerate your mind and your sharpness in any meeting room way faster than going down traditional paths. And the number one reason for that is We all go through the four C's competitive audit, right? It's your competition, it's the culture, it's your company, the category, and so on and so forth, and the consumer, of course. And when you think about all of those four streams and the four C's formula, you're not thinking about the unexpected. And that's the first thing I learned at my first agency, Heat, which is the element of surprise is always going to be the best fuel for creativity. So that's something that I always push people to chase after as well. Eric, thank you so much for being on this podcast. You're so inspirational. And I think it's great to know that, you know, you don't need a linear path. You don't need to follow what the parents have laid out for you to get to the success. And the success has to be defined by yourself and not someone else. I sure hope so. Well, Susie, thanks for sharing your time with me. And um, also a big thank you for AIA for providing this platform. You guys, again, are fighting the good fight, and I love to see it. But in particular, thank you for your friendship. It's been a wild ride already, and uh, I can't wait to see where we go. Thank you for joining us today. If you want to learn more, visit us at asiansinadvertising.com. And we would really appreciate it if you rate, review, or follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to tune in in two weeks to get another episode with Bernice.